Hello and welcome to Speaking Spirit, where we talk about all things spiritual. Your host, John Moore, is a shamanic practitioner and spiritual teacher. And now, here's John. Hello, 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 everybody. I have missed you all. I don't know if you missed me. <laughs> it's been... It's been a long time since I have uh, done a podcast episode. Um, There is a good reason for that. I have been astoundingly busy launching a a brand new shamanic community that I'm very excited about. It's doing very well, um, but required uh, some significant effort on my part and the part of my partner who's working on it. And, um, you know, it's a fantastic thing. And if you are, uh, if you practice shamanism, uh, this is a good community for you to be supported, to journey together, to get prompts, to get self-care tips, to learn new things. Um, it really is amazing. I'm, I'm getting a lot out of it myself, even as a, as a co-host and founder. Um, and the URL for that is shamancommunity.com. So you can check it out there and um, see what we're up to. Today is a beautiful spring day. It's going to be where I am in the 60s. That's Fahrenheit. (laughs) If that were centigrade, we'd be in big trouble. Um, It's going to be a beautiful day. The sun is up. It's shining. The chipmunks are running around. The birds are out. I have to get some more bird seed for my feeders and uh, feed my little feathered friends. Do a little, do a little work outside as well. So anyway, today I want to talk about magic and mysticism. And the esoteric and the exoteric and, you know, some different aspects of spirituality and just bring some thought into these paths and what they're about and sort of what we define as magic and what we define as mysticism and what is exoteric and what is esoteric. Um, And I'm going to start by saying that you know, I am going to be talking about some religions here. Um, And I don't, you know, I, being a person who does not belong to an organized religion, um, but I respect people's choice to do so, um, I don't want to, I, I don't want this to come across as me bashing anybody's religion. Far from it. Um but I'm going to talk about the you know some history of things and and not everybody's history is beautiful and wonderful. I mean, it's tempting to believe that. It's tempting to say you know Christianity is all about love, but then you look at the Crusades and the Inquisition and burning witches at the stake, and um, you know there this isn't about the religion. These things were done in the name of the religion. This is about people um, justifying horrible actions using religion. So I'm not talking about that at all. Um, But I'm going to delve into 
perhaps a little bit of history. And uh, if anything I say disagrees with what you believe, that is totally fine. We can disagree and still be friends, can we not? We're living in a very divisive age politically, spiritually, economically. Let's not make this another area that has to necessarily divide us. And I, you know, I fully believe that everybody is on their own path. Everybody is on a completely unique path. I don't care if you are a shamanic practitioner like myself. We're still on different paths. And no two Christians and no two Jews and no two Muslims and no two... Everybody is unique. Everybody is living their own thing, their own life, their own path. And we should start by recognizing that. And the other thing is, when we look around at the world and at the universe, what we see is a mind-boggling and astounding infinity of diversity, right? Um, Think of how many species of beetles there are on this planet, how many... um, Species of plants and fungus and mushrooms. Well, mushrooms are a fungus. Um, how many different types of minerals there are. And that's just on this planet. You know, we're a speck of dust in a gigantic galaxy full of billions of stars swirling around in a universe that's made up of billions of galaxies. And... There are probably an infinite number of parallel universes. It's hard to get your brain around all of it. And so to think that any one person has it has it right for the rest of the universe is pretty haughty. <laughs> it's you're kind of putting yourself in the place of the creator. And I'll use the word I'll use the word God sort of interchangeably here. And the word God has a lot of baggage with it. So sometimes I don't use it. Sometimes I'll say source or the universe or the creator. But I want to dissociate from the idea of God as this white bearded male who lives in the clouds and who gets angry a lot and uh decides to commit genocide and, you know, that sort of thing. And I'll talk about that when I get to talking about mysticism a little bit more this morning. And one thing I'm going to do that I always do when I talk about things, um, I will define my terms. Um, and if you've listened to this podcast before, you're probably, you may be sick of hearing me say this. Um, but it's an important distinction I make and... It's an important thing that I call out for people who might not have listened to my podcast before, that when I define things, when I say this is what magic means and this is what mysticism means and this is esoteric, exoteric, it's not that I want my definition to supersede yours or that there's one way of defining anything. There isn't. It's only that I want 
you to have a better understanding of what I mean when I'm using these words. And that's it. If your definition of something disagrees with mine, then that's totally fine. I think we can both be right. Okay, And everything happens in context anyway. So when I describe things, it is in the context of my life and my studies and my practice. And like I said, no two people are on the same path. We're all going to the same place, ultimately. But no two people are on the same path. And so your context is different than mine. Even if, and and here's a good um, here's a good example of this. I have I have identical twin daughters, and the word identical is a little strange to me because my daughters are very different. They look a lot alike. They share genetics. They were born a minute apart and essentially have close to identical astrological charts. Yet they are very different personality-wise, the things they like, the things they dislike. There are similarities, of course, like any two human beings or any siblings raised in the same household. So they're raised in the same household at the same time. The environmental factor is the same. They went to the same schools. You know, they have had different friends. They have had different teachers. They like different, uh, you know, they they have things in common with, with many other 15-year-olds. You know, things they watch. They like Snapchat and TikTok. Um, but they're very different people. Very different. And they have been since birth. So... Thinking about these children that have, you know, that share genetics, they were started as a single fertilized egg that split apart. Single egg, single sperm, same genetic material, split apart in the womb. And we know that they are, um, we know they are identical because they shared a single placenta, um, which only happens with identical twins. It's called mono, they're monochorionic twins. They did not share a single, um, uh, a single sac they had, which is good because that's very dangerous. And uh, um, chances are that one, one of them would not have survived. That's amniotic sac. Um, and the, this, um, I guess my understanding of this is it's, it depends on when the egg, the fertilized egg splits into two different children. But, you know, can you imagine in the womb, there's this clump of fertilized cells that could grow into a single being, and for some unknown reason, it splits into two two independent beings. They live in the same environment for, you know, it wasn't quite nine months, they were born prematurely, but they live in the same environment and get the same nutri- nutrients essentially and have the same genetics and they were born behaving completely different, differently. 
And my explanation for that is that they have different souls. There are different souls in those little bodies. And they're very different. And their paths may be different. And um, we have raised them to follow their own path. Um, Their mother is Catholic. Nobody is forcing them to be Catholic. I am a non-religious but very spiritual person, um, and I practice shamanism, and nobody is forcing them to practice shamanism. So they're very different, and everybody's on the same path, and this is a long way of me saying, if we differ in our viewpoint on things, it's totally fine. And my entire intention for this is just to give you some things to think about. And I don't want you to believe everything I say. In fact, I invite you to disbelieve everything I say or to take it for what one teacher told me, um, uses this expression a lot, um, take it for checking. And um, another teacher of mine would say, everything I tell you is BS until you make it, until you study it and make it your own, until you prove it for yourself. This is very different than a lot of systems, religious systems, spiritual systems that tell you don't ever question anything. Don't question anything. You question things, that's blasphemy. Don't question things. Question everything, my friends. (laughs) Stay on your path, I don't care. Do what you want to do, but question everything. So anything I say, you don't have to believe, and I expect you not to, unless it makes sense to you. Unless you do some exploration and it makes sense to you, but I want to give you some things to think about today. Today I'm talking about my two of my very favorite topics, magic and mysticism. And I'm going to talk also about exoteric and esoteric. So exoteric EX and esoteric ES, spirituality. We'll start there a little bit. So... Exoteric spirituality, exoteric means like outer, the outer form. So you go to church and you pray and you read the books and you sing, or you go to temple or you go to a mosque or you go to um, satsang or you, you know, whatever, whatever it is you go to, or you have this sort of outward practice, these outward teachings of your form of spirituality. And maybe you have doctrine, maybe you have books that are full of stories like the Bible or the Quran or the Torah or the, you know, the other, um, any other spiritual books, the Vedas, the um, Dhammapada, the, you know, I'm losing track of all the spiritual books there are. So you have doctrine and you have dogma and you have... um, outward-facing rituals, right? You go to Mass, you go to, you know, do whatever. That stuff is very exoteric. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about, I'm going to talk about Christianity quite a lot just because it is the religion I'm most familiar with having been raised in a couple of different Christian churches and having, you know, gone to church for at least some of my wayward youth 
And I got to tell you, it didn't keep me out of trouble. <laughs> um, I was a natural born rebel, I guess. I'm just going to have a little sip of my coffee here. Um, so, um, so I mean, I'm going to talk about Christianity, but th- these things are not, you know, these are examples. And these things happen in every sort of um, form of spirituality that has been made into a religion, an organized religion. So, again, the exoteric is the outer stuff, and the esoteric is the hidden stuff. And one might be one might believe that there is no esoteric Christianity or there is no esoteric Islam. I mean, we we certainly know about esoteric forms of uh, Judaism. Kabbalah is has you know lots of esoteric stuff in it. But I will tell you that there is a lot of Jewish esoteric mysticism brought into Christianity. And uh, I'll give you an example of this. I'll give you just one tiny example of this. And then I'll also talk about some of the other forms of esoteric Christianity. So if you are Christian, you are most likely familiar with the Lord's Prayer. And um, at the end of the Lord's Prayer is a phrase, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen, or something very close to that. And kingdom, power, and glory, um, in Hebrew, malchuth, netzach, and had, are direct um come directly from Kabbalah. Whoever wrote that prayer, and uh, I believe that many Christian sects believe that Jesus himself handed down that prayer. Um, and that would, you know, I have no idea of the historicity of it, but that would certainly make sense. But that part of the prayer contains a very potent um, invocation that comes directly from Jewish mysticism. And if you're at all familiar with Kabbalah, or you can you can look it up, um, you know, Kabbalah is, in, it can be spelled lots of different ways, because it's, you know, technically it's spelled in Hebrew, so when we transliterate it to English, some people spell it with a K and two L's and an A-H, and some people spell it with a Q, and some people spell it with a C. Um, and it did come into modern knowledge from, you know, sort of medieval Jewish writers. As the first, and the word Kabbalah comes from um, the Jewish word kibble. I may be pronouncing this incorrectly. I don't really speak, not really, I, I don't speak Hebrew at all. I just know a few words here and there. But it comes from kibble, which means um, received, like it was an oral tradition, and then um, some rabbi in the Middle Ages, I think in Spain, I think in Spain, um, actually wrote wrote the, some of the first books. The first person to commit this stuff to writing because it was es- it was hidden. It was esoteric. 
you had to go study with the Essenes or somebody to learn this stuff. And there are stories that, um, you know, when Jesus was 13, he was recognized as being very wise. And, um, you know, 13 is the age of majority in uh, in Jewish tradition, right? It's when you have your bar mitzvah or your nowadays your bat mitzvah. And I didn't realize that bat mitzvahs haven't been around that long. Um. And they were pretty much, inv- I think they were invented in the U.S., as a matter of fact. Now it's much more commonplace. Um, but bar mitzvahs were when happened at the age of 13, and we have stories of Jesus going to the temple and discussing topics, and then there's nothing about him until he's around 30. And some stories have him going off to study with this um mystical group out in the desert called the Essenes. Ultimately, we don't know. I mean, you know, we can we can take guesses and stuff. But, you know, if he did indeed pen or recite the Lord's Prayer, it contains Jewish mystical wisdom in it, Jewish mystical knowledge. And um, I think that's pretty cool. And there, you know, there are other, there are other very esoteric practices in Christianity. Um, you know, hidden stuff. Um, we get, you know, not forms of Gnosticism. A lot of it was heresy. A lot of a lot of the esoteric stuff got wiped out. Um, and the reason for that is, um, you know, that through many of the Christian eras, the different eras in Christian history, starting with, um, you know, the Holy Roman Empire and, uh, you know, then the onto the Crusades and the Inquisitions. Um, a lot of this stuff was about political power. And again, I'm not, I'm not talking crap about people who believe in Christianity or practice Christianity. I'm talking about organizations that used Christianity as a weapon of control and domination and committed genocide and all things that are not Christian ideals. You know, converting people at the point of a sword is not very Christian. When I was a kid, I always wondered about the, you know, Onward Christian Soldiers (laughs) song that they sang. I was like, I thought Jesus was about love. Um, you know, oh, that's not what we're singing about. Yes, it is. It is, in fact. So Christianity in the early, early ages, when, you know, during the Holy Roman Empire and during the Crusades and things like that, so for like the first thousand years, was strongly associated with the military. And that's how it got spread. It wasn't Christianity in the beginning was a, you know, sort of an offshoot sect of Judaism. And it wasn't <clears throat> it wasn't until you know, well after Jesus's death, of course they he didn't, you know, they didn't call themselves Christians before his death. It wasn't until well after that that um, you know, they started recruiting Gentiles and non-Jewish people and you know, by then 
we're looking at the teachings of other people besides Jesus himself. And then it wasn't until, you know, the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea where they actually decided they voted on many things, including which books would go in the Bible and which ones wouldn't because there were a lot of books circulating at the time. Um, you know, the Gospel of Thomas is one of those. So, you know, there were these Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Judas. You know, it talks about talks about Jesus kissing Mary Magdalene and her being preferred among his um, apostles. But because... Christianity was adopted by a Roman Empire, and um, you know the army was forced to be Christian, and the pagan temples got overturned, and all this stuff. It was very patriarchal, and to this day, there are still many patriarchal remnants. The Catholic Church will not make women priests or cardinals, for example. Um, you know that has changed somewhat in some other denominations, but it is, you know, it is what it is, very patriarchal. And so Christianity spread around the world at the point of a sword. And it wasn't because people were like, hey, this is, some people were, but very, very few. Imagine, you know, you're following the religion of your ancestors forever, For all of your memory. And somebody comes along and says, hey, guess what? My religion is better than yours. And if you believe this, you're going to to heaven. Well, most people are going to, you know, whether, it doesn't matter if you believe that your religion is the one true religion or that you testify to that fact. If I showed up at your house right now, whatever your spiritual belief, and knocked on your door and tried to set, sell you on worshiping squirrels, most people, and I'm not comparing Christianity to worshiping squirrels, I'm using this as a terrible example, a stupid example, an absurd example. Most people would say, go take a flying leap. And the same would be true of Christianity as well for a very long time in many places. You know, it, it came in late to many areas, and it would take sort of, um, you know, either a king adopting Christianity, realizing that it was a great way to control control people and use it for political power, and, you know, hang on to that patriarchal system of power, and then forcing everybody to convert. And that's what happened. And because the Roman Empire was so huge... You know, it went from Asia Minor to, uh, you know, to Egypt to, um, you know, all the way to what is now the UK, to Britain, Ireland, Scotland. Although, you know, the Christianity didn't go into Ireland and Scotland to quite late as well. Um, which is interesting to consider how religious um, Irish, you know, the Irish tend to be. Um, But there is a lot of, you know, what happens there a lot 
when Christianity goes into an area. I've seen this in the Philippines, which is predominantly Catholic, and I've seen this in Ireland, and a lot of local stuff gets pulled in. So they have St. Bridget in Ireland um, is essentially took over for Bridget, a goddess, a goddess of the hearth and of blacksmiths um, in Ireland, became, became a saint, a Catholic saint. We see that a lot, quite a lot, as a matter of fact. Um, so there's some stuff, you know, there's stuff that gets mixed in, makes it easier to convert, and then the holidays get converted, right? We put Christmas on December 25th, which was Saturnalia. We put um, Easter, you know, in Ostara. We put, uh, you know, we put we put a lot of the holidays and stuff to eclipse the pagan stuff. You know, there was the, you know, all that, lots of replacement happening. Anyway, let me get to, so the outer stuff is the exoteric and the hidden stuff is esoteric. And there is esoteric Christianity, it survives to this day. But again, it's esoteric, it's hidden. There's esoteric Practices in Judaism, which are a little bit more well-known because they were written down and they were adopted by other traditions. So in Western ceremonial magic, for example, there is a lot of Kabbalah. Um, this, I'm listening to an audio book on um, Kabbalah by Dion Fortune, who is a um, Christian magician, I guess, ceremonial magician. Um, I will say that um, it comes off as, by today's standards, it comes off as quite racist. She's talking about the white races and stuff like that. Um, uh, It's a little tough. It's a little bitter. But if you get past that stuff, um, you know, there, there is still... There's still good mystical, magical learnings there. So there's lots of, you know, there's lots of that. In um, in Islam, for example, the esoteric stuff, you find, well, you find mystics among the Sufis, for example, and there's probably significant esoteric teachings there. But I also know that there are... Um, there is uh, Islamic magic dealing with the jinn, or what we might call we in English might call genies, which are spirits of the you know spirits that live in the desert. Um, many consider them devils, but that comes from pre-Islamic stuff. And what happened when a lot of these religions took over? is they turned everybody else's gods, goddesses, and local spirits into devils and demons. Uh, definitely happened with Christianity. Um, if you think about the god, the, you know, the god Pan from the Greek, from Greek paganism, you know, cloven hooves and horns sounds a lot like the devil, doesn't it? And the word demon comes from the Greek daemon, 
which just means spirits. And there were good demons and bad demons. And, and, you know, you had a house demon, which is the spirit that lived in your house that took care of things. They weren't angels that rebelled against the one true God and fell from heaven. And that was, that came much later. That stuff. So, you know, when they would go in, they would eclipse the holidays. They would replace the holidays with Christian holidays they would burn the temples to the ground. They would force people to convert or kill them. They would um, erect churches on on older, holier sites. This happened. Uh, this happened in the British Isles quite a lot. And um, I just was talking to somebody the other day who is biking along ley lines, which are these lines of I don't know these lines of spiritual current that run through everywhere, but. It's easy to map in the UK because there are churches built along them because they were built on earlier pagan sites. So it's one way to sort of give give the middle finger to the pagans was to like take over their take over their sacred sites and build a church on top of them. So um, there's still a lot of esoteric stuff going on. Um, you know, less of it. A lot of it got wiped out. Um, they you know, they burned the libraries in Alexandria. So we lost a lot of knowledge in the West, unfortunately. In the East, um, you know, magic and mysticism is blended with everyday life quite beautifully. Um, You know, you can, you know, if you go to Japan, you can go to um, a Buddhist temple or Shinto shrine. and And most people their practice kind of both. I mean, 80% of people in Japan consider themselves Shinto, which is um, an animistic religion that has, um, I would say, mystical practices. You know, um, you know, they do a lot. There's a lot of purification rituals involving water and fire and, and all kinds of stuff. And you can go to a Buddhist temple and you can practice meditation there. You can practice Zen, which is a very... Um, you know, technically mystical practice. Meditation is akin to mysticism because uh, it is about, it is about, uh, well, we'll talk about, I'll give you the definition of mysticism in a moment. But so in the East, it's a little more difficult to differentiate between exoteric and esoteric practices because spiritual practices very widely and a lot of them are out in the open. I will say this though: there are places, um, there are places that are very closed in the East. For example, there are certain um, mystical markets. For example, in Nepal, where Westerners are not allowed, there are certain practices that you would not be allowed to participate in or see. Um, you know that sort of thing. And in um, in Judaism, we have the story of the Ark of the Covenant, which I find fascinating. And, you know, so if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, or if you know anything about it, you'll know, you know, is this box in which a number of things were kept, including the Ten Commandments. And 
the instructions for building this box are, um, you know, were are in the Bible, and you can read them. You know, a certain size box, and it's made out of wood, and it is lined inside and out with gold, and um, contains uh, an elixir inside, a certain elixir, and has, uh, you know, it was one of the things composed inside, and then has these, um, uh, essentially, what they're what they call carobs, but they're sphinxes on top of the box. You might think of carobs or cherubs as little fat babies with wings, but um, that's Renaissance art for you. Um, real cherubim, which is an order of angels, uh, were sphinxes. So the body of a lion, but they had wing, usually the head of a man, and they had wings. And so many people have posited that the Ark of the Covenant was a giant battery. And when you read some of the stories about it, like casting lightning, that sometimes caused the high priest to explode, um, you know, and that it was kept, it was kept covered inside the Holy of Holies. And I don't know if it was once a year or whatever, um, you know, the, the high priest would go in and lay his hands on it and sometimes would explode. And he would go into this chamber. He was the only one allowed in. And um, he would have a rope tied around his ankle. So if the thing killed him, which happened with some level of frequency, um, his, you know, other priests could pull his body out of the chamber. Um, so a lot of it sounds like it's a giant battery. And there are, um, there have been, there have been working uh, batteries or what would have been working batteries recovered in ancient Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia. Look up the Babylon battery if you don't believe me. Um, we're missing, you know, in the modern ages, we're missing a lot of ancient technology that we haven't found because you know, to be honest, stuff that's 10,000 years old decomposes, even if it's made out of metal. We really only have a lot of things. Most of what we have has to be made out of stone because it doesn't decompose quickly. Or it's been preserved by being in a desert somewhere, which is why we have working batteries from Egypt and Mesopotamia. Electrical batteries. So we have an acid solution, we have an insulator, we have, um, you know, an anode and a cathode, and, you know, this thing probably did give off lightning. It probably collected charge out of the atmosphere for a long time. It, in more than a battery, it was probably, um, you know, a giant capacitor. Judging strictly by the instructions on how to build this thing, it would have served as a capacitor. So anyway, um, imagine like once a year or however however frequently going in and laying your hands on this thing, not knowing if you're going to explode. But even um, priests who didn't explode were often um, struck down by the power of the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was seen as the the power of God. 
and not to take anything from anyone's beliefs or anything, but you know, I mean, electricity is a pretty amazing thing. And if you think that source or God created the universe, then everything is electrical. Um, you know, everything has electrons. So we could say that this is a power of, of God indeed. God's great lightning. So, that's exoteric and esoteric. Exoteric is the stuff that everybody sees going to church, reading the Bible. Esoteric is frequently, sometimes written down, but frequently word of mouth stuff or stuff written in cipher or hidden in images or written in allegory. So, let me tell you some a little bit about a little bit about the 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 Bible. So, you know, there's obviously there's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament, and, you know, the New Testament was written in Aramaic and Greek, and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And then everything was later translated into Latin, because that was the language of the land and the language of law. Um, even if you lived in England or wherever, the only Bibles around for the longest time were written in Latin. And the reason for that is that these, the, the Bible was not originally meant to be consumed by everyone. In fact, you could have been in big trouble, even killed for possessing a Bible if you were not the right person. And certainly most people couldn't read until pretty recently. And masses were conducted in Latin. So if you didn't read and you didn't understand Latin... You didn't even know what the heck was being said. You know, you just went to church to get the, you know, because that was the thing that you had to do. Things are, I know, you know, things are different now. You know, Catholic Mass. And it was only in the 20th century when that changed. I think it was in the 1960s. So, 2,000 years Mass was con- almost two thousand years. Mass was conducted in in Latin, and um, you know, translating at various times, translating the Bible into the vernacular, which is the, you know the local tongue, was um, illegal. But the Bible was not meant to be a read by unlearned people, because b it was not meant to be read literally. And while there are events and people in the Bible that are that are historical, a lot of what in what is in there is allegorical and hidden. And it doesn't take a lot, actually, to see that, to find that out, to learn that. You don't have to look too deeply. I give you an example with the Lord's Prayer being you know, the bottom triad of the tree of life from Kabbalah is the last line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. La olam amen, forever amen. Right? Uh, kingdom, power, glory. Malkuth netzach had. And so there's, you know, literally reading the Bible and thinking the world is 6,000 years old, which actually the Bible doesn't state. 
But looking at this as a historical document was seen for most of the history of the Bible as the lowest form of reading the Bible. Because it did not give you an understanding of a real understanding of God. And I can tell you that, um, you know, unless you're, unless you can read biblical Hebrew and biblical Greek, you're reading, you're reading a translation that may not really approach, uh, what is, you know, more or less approaches what is said there, but might not. And I know of, I know of people who went to divinity school and were taking um, biblical Greek and reading the New Testament, and many, many of them had a crisis of faith when they found out that the original New Testament in Greek did not say what they thought it said for their entire life. And in Hebrew, one of the things I find really interesting is the uh, the creator in Genesis is Elohim. And Elohim also, you know, in some places referred to as Elohim Adonai, which Adonai is frequently translated as Lord. But Elohim is often translated as God, sometimes as Lord in English. Um, but that word is a complicated word, Elohim. Eel or E-L, is a word for goddess, female. It's a feminine word. And him is masculine and plural. So you have a word that is both feminine, masculine, and plural. And that flies in the face of a lot of patriarchy. And a lot of monotheism. And some might translate that as, in the beginning, the gods and goddesses created mankind in their own image. But that would be sacrilegious for many in Christianity. That would be blasphemous. But I do know that there are some people who translate it that way. Anyway, let's get on. I've talked a little bit about mysticism already. And mysticism is about reuniting with the Godhead. Now, nowadays, there's this new age movement towards ascension and the fifth dimension and all of these things, and people are putting these different different terms on things, and, you know, it's okay. I don't want to take anything away from anyone else, but um, I just think a lot, you know, I see a lot of that as very egoic, right, where True reunion with the Godhead is about peeling away layers of the ego, not about, it's not about achieving something. It's not about achievement, it's about dropping away. It's about dropping away the false. Now, in the, in the Kabbalah, you, you know, if you ever get a chance and you don't, haven't seen this, look at the tree of life. There are true, two paths on the tree of life, and the tree of life is a diagram which many take as um, looking at different states of consciousness between God the Creator at the very top of the tree and um, the physical universe at the bottom, being Malkuth, the kingdom. And there are two paths in the tree of life. One is a pathway down from God to the physical universe, 
And the other is a, is a pathway up from the physical universe to God. The pathway up, which is known as the path of the snake, and where have we seen a snake in a tree before? Oh, in the book of Genesis, in the story of Adam and Eve, in the tree of knowledge, and eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Gets you kicked out of the kingdom, Malkuth. Interesting. And some would call that original sin. But it's called the path of the snake as the snake is winding up the tree. And this is about movement from identification with the physical to identification with less and less physic physic you know physical universe to higher and more subtle states until one fully identifies with essentially limitless light, which is what, you know, essentially what God is pictured as in this model. And everything's a model. It's not, you know, it's a map of reality. It isn't reality. The pathway down the tree from God into the physical universe is the path of magic. I'll talk about magic in a moment, but magic is about creation, it is about affecting, you know, going, f- taking from high and going down into um, more and more solid planes of existence until you get into physical reality. Let's talk about and define magic for a second. I'm not, let me be very clear that I'm not talking about stage magic here. I love Penn and Teller. I love stage magic when I was about eight years old. I won second place in a talent show doing a magic act. Um, I have not kept up my practice, but I love, love, love stage magic. I love illusion. Um, I love the psychology of it. Um, I like tricking people, you know, in ways that make them happy, not in ways that, you know, make people less happy or or cause them harm. But... um, you know, surprising people, delighting people. I like all of that, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about um, magic, and sometimes in the West we spell that with a K to differentiate it from magic, and that was that K was added by an infamous magician named Aleister Crowley, who called himself the Beast 666, and, you know, the guy got a lot of bad press, and, um, you know, by all accounts, he was not a very nice person. It's kind of a jerk. However, a lot of his bad press was his own doing. He, he was a guy, he was really good at PR, really good at PR. And he knew that he could get a lot of attention. And he was, you know, he was an egomaniac. Let's be clear about that. He could get a lot of attention by painting himself as the most wicked man on earth. He wasn't the most wicked man on earth. I mean, certainly Hitler would fall into that category. Stalin would fall into that category. Um, but whatever. He, you know, he he promoted his image as a black magician and a drug fiend and all of these things. And he he was the, those things. And the people were afraid of that back then. And that got him in newspapers, it got him press, it got him a following, and that's what he wanted. But 
he defined magic as causing change in accordance with will. And I think that is a little too general for me. Because if I pick up an apple and throw it across the room, I have caused change in accordance with will, but most of us would not consider that a magical act. But, um, you know, if I pray for somebody and they are healed, or if I pray and my consciousness is elevated, or if I, you know, practice a ritual and I, you know, I have a change in consciousness, those I would consider magical acts. And I do consider prayer a magical act. And the the Catholic Church in particular is full of ritual magic. I mean, transubstantiation, they turn the, you know, the, the host into the body of Christ, literally. When you're eating the wafer in, a, in Catholic Mass, you are literally consuming the body of Christ. They do not consider it a spiritual change. They, it, they consider that an actual physical change, whether you see it or not. Um, that is a magical ritual. But lots of things are. Marriage, you know, all kinds of stuff. So I would say using, you know, non-physical means, and there may be a physical component because there might be a physical ritual that is performed, but I'm not using direct physical means to cause a change in reality. And the change can happen on all of the different planes or some of the planes. So if I do something and change my consciousness, I believe that's a magical act because that's a different plane. But most of us think of the physical and we think of stuff that looks like we see, we've seen in the movies, you know, casting fireballs out of your fingertips or, you know, that sort of thing. But that's not really what it's about. So the magical path is, a, is, a, is the path of creation, it's the path from divinity. So in a lot of Western magic, they work with angels and archangels. And there's all of these orders and there's these complex systems of who works for who. And there are different worlds. And you you know, you know, reach up to work with these archangels who set their angels to work doing these tasks. Or you bind demons. And there's, there's all kinds of stuff. But there's all kinds of different types of magic. There's chaos magic. There's mental magic that works with pure consciousness. Ultimately, it's kind of all uh, kind of all the same. You're using different methods to have your consciousness create change, and to create change, you have to change your consciousness. So, as a teacher of shamanism, I would say that shamanism is both exoteric and esoteric and has both magical and mystical components. When I work with cli- on behalf of clients, for example, I need to um, merge my consciousness frequently with helping spirits to do the work. And that is, that is mysticism. And... 
And doing that work to cause change, to cause healing to happen, to cause psychological change for the client, that's magic. So there's a little bit of both going on there. Both magic and mysticism. Um, this is just a little taste. Uh, you know, I'll talk more about these subjects I, as, as I am fond and love them all. Um, but I will talk more about magic. I will talk more about mysticism and esoteric and exoteric stuff in future podcasts. I just wanted to give you some things to think about. And again, I hope you don't think if you follow a particular religion or spiritual path, please don't think that I am bashing on that or looking down upon it or saying bad things about it. I am not. I'm not at all. I am just trying to point out some things to think about. And again, I think all paths can be equally valid, except when they say this is the only path that I have a problem with. And I, you know, don't mean to, again, that might fly in the face of what you believe. But if you need to believe that the way you do things is the only way to do them, you've got some work to do. You've got some work to do on yourself. You have given up your identity. You've given up a good portion of your identity and you are uncomfortable with other people not giving up theirs. Um, and that's not what <laughs> that's not what this reality is about. So at the very top, divinity, we can say God, we can say source, we can say the universe, is limitless light. Ein Sof Ur is what it's called in Hebrew, which stands for limitless potential, limitless unrealized potential. So this is a consciousness, an all-pervasive consciousness that has every potentiality in it. And the only way that this limitless potentiality can sort of experience itself is by dividing itself into into many, many, many things, an almost infinite amount of things. So this is where we get this infinite diversity from. The source, I like to use the allegory of, think of source as this infinite, brilliant, white beam of light that has no beginning and no end. But this light wants to wants to look at itself but that's really hard that's about like trying to look in your eyeball you can't you can look in the mirror and see the reflection of your eyeball but you can't look at your own eyeballs you know you can take a picture and look at a picture of your eyeballs but you can't look at your own eyeballs so this differentiation is like a prism in this white light if you've ever you know we've all seen prism you put it in white light and it separates the light out into every color in the rainbow right and then and then some some we can't see so all of these different beams of colored light have the same source if you were to turn off the source well then everything ceases to exist right no white light no rainbow But we're, you know, an individual beam of this rainbow, and where we make an error is where we think that we aren't connected to source and that we are all separate. That's ego. 
We are all separate individual things without connection. And the mystical path is about learning that everything is connected to everything. I understand that it's hard for the human mind to conceive of this. I can't really conceive of this. And I've been working on this for many, many, many years. I I know it at an abstract level that everything is connected to everything. Everything you do has an effect on everything else. Everything else has an effect on you. And everything has an effect on everything. It's the butterfly effect, but times, times infinity. So mysticism is about moving back towards source, moving up your individual beam of light. Again, we're all on different paths. We're all on our individual beams of light. And moving towards that prism, realizing that the prism is there, first of all, and moving towards that source light and then identify, oh, oh, I am, I am source. I'm just happen, my consciousness happens to be just differentiated. But I am no less source than anyone else or anything else. It's all connected. All connected to source. And that is the mystical path. The magical path is can be enhanced by the mystical path because it is um, reaching up to source and bringing down another color of light to make a change in the world as we see it. So with that, this has been, uh, I don't know, maybe a lot of tangents, but I hope this has um, given you some things to think about, some things to examine Um, you know, I would love it if you, again, took what I said for checking, took it out and explored on your own what makes sense for you. Do some reading, do some research, look into things, do some practices, do some meditation, do some prayer. And by the way, um, interestingly, the, you know, the, um, uh, yoga, is a path of, you know, path of union to God, although nowadays in the West, yoga is like a workout. Um, but that's only one f- branch, one arm of yoga. There are eight different arms of yoga, eight different methods. And one is a devotional path, and that's bhakti yoga, right? And that is predominantly Western, um, Western religion is bhakti. It's devotional yoga, there is also um, some chanting, right? You know, you do your rosary. Well, that's mantra yoga, okay? But we, you know, we miss, many times in the West, we miss the other eight arms of yoga. We don't call it yoga. We call it devotional practice or, you know, whatever it is. So anyway, um, look into your own stuff. Be a mystic. Be a magician. You don't have to give up your spiritual system for that. Just look deeper. Read about other systems with an open mind, without judgment, and understand that everybody, again, is on their own path. And with that thought, I'm going to leave you, and I promise there I won't be quite as long a break between this time and the next time. 
and I will happily talk to you very soon. been listening to Speaking Spirit with your host, John Moore. For more info or to contact John, go to mainshaman.com. That's M-A-I-N-E-S-H-A-M-A-N.com.